0: Hello storytellers, welcome to Mentorless Podcast, a show where I have in-depth conversations with filmmakers about one particular project that has asked them to stretch their creativity beyond what they could have imagined. I'm your host, Nathalie Sejan from Mentorless.com. For this second episode, I talked with American screenwriter and producer Lynn Reed. After a career in American campaign politics, Lynn decided it was time to go back to her first love, writing screenplays. Leveraging from the wisdom and experience she gained not working in the industry, Lynn managed to raise the substantial budget for her first screenplay and to take it all the way to a distribution deal with Netflix and other digital platforms. Lynn is a great strategist, and throughout our conversation, she explained step by step how she went from knowing only one actor in the industry to getting her first screenplay shot and distributed. I learned a lot talking with Lynn, and as always, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Lynn Reed, thank you very much for being with me on this Mentorless podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You are a screenwriter and producer of the feature film A Sort of Homecoming. And today what we're going to talk about is your journey from uh, having the idea of the feature into making it a fully formed feature film and having a distribution deal with Netflix. Can you tell us about when, as in... Uh, how long ago you had the first idea for what became a sort of homecoming was, did it came to you as a feature film idea? And how did you go about the process of deciding to write it as a feature
1: screenplay? I first started working on the screenplay in 2011, so about six years ago now. I had always, since I was very young, uh, wanted to write and and specifically wanted to write for the screen, Um, but my career path didn't take off in that direction initially. Um, I'm 48. My first career uh, was in American campaign politics and I did a a variety of of jobs there um, around communications uh, in political campaigns. And then I sort of moved away from that job uh, when my daughter was born. And by 2011, she was old enough and I was itching for something else to do And I went back to this very, uh, you know, old desire to write a screenplay.
0: How did you go, like, what did you do exactly? Uh, Did you go to a night class? Did you buy books, specific books? Did you decide to spend every day sitting behind your desk? Because, so up until that point, you had this love for filmmaking, but you had not written are a produced screenplay at least. I don't know if you've written other screenplays, but this is the sort of Homecoming is your first produced screenplay, right?
1: Correct. I had taken screenwriting classes in college, but I didn't feel like I really necessarily learned it at at that point. What was different for me this time, and I think it was a factor of age and ability to concentrate and just sort of where I was in my life, um, is that by studying specific screenplays of films that I loved, I, I finally felt like I figured something out that I had I had never figured out in in past classes or in past attempts. And I suddenly, I, I felt like I cracked a code, I- at least in my own head. Of how to take an idea and actually, you know, translate it to the screen, but it took a very intense amount of study and concentration of a particular, uh, in this case, television show that I loved. You know, comparing what I saw on screen to the scripts, and just a very intense and focused study on that. So what was
0: the TV show? Do you mind saying?
1: No, not at all. Um, it's actually a, an American detective show called Remington Steel. And I, you know, I watched it as a kid, and then I found it again as an adult and became fascinated with how well it still held up. After 30 years?
0: In 2011, you have this idea and you decide that this is going to be where you're going to concentrate your efforts, writing this uh, screenplay, right? Right. Did you completely give up on uh, making money with a job on the side? Were you doing that full time? And how how long did it take you to have a draft that you felt like sharing with others?
1: Let me break that down a little bit. In terms of money and other jobs, I mean, I'm fortunate in that my husband has a successful business. And so in some ways, my job was to, you know, get my daughter back and forth to school and, you know, keep the house running and, uh, you know, occasionally pitch out on, pitch in on other little businesses we have. But I didn't have a a full-time, all-consuming job uh, at that point. And I I was fortunate to be able to focus on my writing. I did start out by writing, you know, 40 pages, just almost, not quite stream of consciousness, but not fully planned, you know, just sort of to test myself. And then I, I sent it off to an actor friend of mine, you know, a very close friend to say, do I have anything here? Um, And he encouraged me to keep going. And so it took me really the summer of 2011 to get a first draft, a very, very rough first draft. And then in the fall of 2011, I took two classes to work on revising that script. One was in person um, and was a weekly meeting of of a writer's group. The folks there weren't screenwriters. Uh, you know, They were novelists. They were short story writers. But it was something I could do in person where I was. Um, and then I took an online screenwriting course at the same time. And through those two courses, um, I was able to make a set of revisions.
0: When did you tell yourself, I'm going to try to make this happen? And what were the steps? you took for that, did it happen once you were done with the
1: script or while you were writing the script? Do you see what I mean? Yes, no, uh, it, it, it happened much later, actually. Once I finished the classes and felt that I had um, a, a good revision, you know, a solid script that, that I was happy enough to send out, um, I entered contests. So, you know, contests that were attached to uh, film festivals, as well as more famous, uh, you know, contests that I'm sure your, your listeners are all familiar with. And other than a couple of film festival uh, mentions, you know, it really didn't go anywhere. And so I put it aside and wrote other things.
0: I feel you you were in the situation uh, that so many of us are, which is you have this desire to tell stories, but you don't live in one of the major cities in the world where the film industry is. Did you have already, um, besides your, your actor friend, a network of support, or was your strategy being I'm going to write stories that I feel strong about and try to get noticed?
1: My initial strategy through maybe the first year and a half of of writing um both a sort of homecoming and then the other television pilot was yes you know I'm going to write something good and I'm going to get noticed and I'm going to enter contests and I'm going to try and meet people where I can and you know use any existing contacts I might have to try right. and get attention the turning point in my thinking was the summer of 2012 I went to an event in Los Angeles that was sort of like speed dating for writers where you you had 10 minutes to pitch your idea you know to different production companies and that was really eye opening to me about how the business worked and I started to understand that producers You know, other than other than uh, big studios, but just sort of regular independent producers weren't in all that different a position than I was. You know, they weren't they weren't sitting on big pots of money. They were looking for ideas that they could then go out and attempt to raise money from other people. And so that was really a revelation. I was like, okay, there's really very few people in the filmmaking world who are sitting on giant pots of money and everyone else is just out there chasing it. So why couldn't I do that myself?
0: Interesting. So that's when you basically contemplated the idea of becoming your producer.
1: Yes. And at that point, once I sort of had that revelation, you know, I, I grew up in Louisiana. And at that point, Louisiana was building its own film industry through a series of tax credits and trying to attract people from Hollywood to, to film in Louisiana. So I got in touch with a uh, a high school friend who was an actor who had stayed in Louisiana and just had a conversation about trying to learn about that. What was that process? And over the course of several conversations um, in the fall of 2012, we decided to join up and explore whether or not we could produce a sort of homecoming in Louisiana. And I hadn't talked to this classmate in almost 25 years. Is this classmate one of the other producers? He is, he's a, a co-producer on the film. His name is Marcus Brown. He also acts in the film. He plays the role of Keith. You know, as I started to work with uh, with Marcus and his wife Yvette, the first part was simply learning about how the tax credit process worked in Louisiana, sort of learning about the, the business um, aspect of it, learning that I could hire someone for not that much money to read the script and give me a budget.
0: So this is how you did to find out how to break down the script?
1: Exactly. I, um, I, I hired someone um, to read the script and give me a budget. And so that was a huge learning process as well. And so really for the first, I'd say, six months of, of Marcus and Yvette and I working together, we concentrated on the the business aspects of things. How do you set up a company in Louisiana so that eventually you'd be eligible for the tax credits? How much money do we actually need? You know, what once we had the budget document, then there were a ton of decisions to make. You know, is this the real budget? Can we get the budget smaller? How much money do we really need?
0: Would you mind telling us how much was the budget? The first time you've been told how much was the budget and what was your reaction about it? How did you go
1: about it? Did you reduce it? The first time uh, I got a budget uh, drawn up, they said it might be over $3 million. And our actual budget by the time this got filmed was just a little bit over a million.
0: So you managed to reduce the cost by two millions or you managed to find other ways to compensate for the two million?
1: Let's just say that the three million was a guess, right? And that it had certain assumptions uh, built into it about what you'd pay the actors and what you'd pay the director and uh, things like that were easy to reduce.
0: Do you remember how you felt about it? Because I mean at any point during this process you can stop, right? There's nothing engaged yet.
1: Oh, right, right, exactly. I mean at any, you know, I've I've spent a little bit of money right to pay someone to do the budget or contest entry fees or whatever, but I haven't, you know, I haven't spent a significant amount of money at that point. So how did I, I, I how did I feel about it? I was naive, you know? I thought, oh three million dollars, how hard can that
0: be? That's a great reaction
1: actually. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to understand, I came out of the world of American political campaigns where a three million dollar campaign for someone running to become a member of Congress was absolutely normal.
0: I see. Which is which is actually playing in your favor, I guess. During this process, were you back into working on the screenplay and on the production side what was your next move
1: well i think that my next move um i I was not working on the screenplay at at this point um my next move was to understand which independent films were successful meaning financially successful which independent films eventually made money for their investors because now I'm thinking about this as a business, you know, as a 3 million dollar business. So, how does any film, you know, make enough money to pay back investors in that situation? And so at that point I started just learning learning about the whole life cycle that most independent films need to raise all of that money up front and they're not going to get distribution until they've gotten into some festivals and gotten some attention. So then I knew that I was looking for a particular kind of investor, right? Someone who could wait several years to to get money back. You know, so it was just sort of learning, learning that process and, you know, reading everything I could about successful independent films, films that got into Sundance, films that got into... Uh, you know, Cannes or or any of the big festivals, and you know, how did that happen?
0: That's still fascinating to me because when you learn how it happens, I personally feel that it's almost impossible for anybody to recoup on a movie. I don't know how many examples of independent films do you have? Do you have any indie films that are uh, recent, within the last five years, let's say, in mind? Because I would love, I would love to to know and i'm sure people are curious to know about them maybe they're ones we all know but i'm interested in the in the in the indie indie films you picked as a study as a case study
1: well I, i think at that point i was still hoping to hit the jackpot right so um you know i'm looking at i think at that point films like um Sorry, I'm seeing pictures in my head and not coming up with titles, and that's not terribly helpful. It's always like that. It's always like that. I was looking at examples that, as you say, are probably the films that that we all know well. Films that went to Sundance, films that did well at Sundance, and got a big, splashy distribution deal out of them. And partly naivete, uh, I just thought, well, you know, okay, I'm going to roll the dice here and try to do that. You know, that's my model, that's what I'm going to try and do
0: so you 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 made a business plan or something and you started hitting you know local businesses that are looking to cut uh, their uh, taxes or people from the industry i don't know what did you do
1: again my my experience in american politics came into play here because anytime a person decides to run for office in america and and has to raise millions of dollars in order to do that there's a process by which you figure out Um, who to go and and ask for money for your campaign and so you start close in you know friends and family people who are going to support you because it's you you know and and that was certainly the same in film you know who among my my close friends uh my previous business associates you know, might support this just you know because it's me. And it helped that I was older and that I had worked in another industry. You know, it's not something I could have done at, at 25 in the same way.
0: It's a very good point because I feel a lot of people feel that with age, uh, there's less credibility into going for films. And I think that what you say is so true. You have more expertise, you have a better network, and I think people shouldn't shy away from leveraging those tools to go and make their own films.
1: It's a very good point. I mean, I could go to someone that I had worked with previously, right, in, in another business. And because they had a good opinion of me and and my ability to run other businesses they would at least know, okay, well, film is a risky investment, but I, at least I know that Lynn is a responsible person and has run businesses before and, and will do her best um, with this money.
0: Yeah. So we're still in the first circle of people, and, and I want to get to the other circle of people, but my, um, something I find interesting is that you didn't go with uh, what is now the norm, which is the crowdfunding system. You went through. Uh, you used the way you, you used to do with politics, right? You just called people up front and asked them. Yes. Did you consider uh, doing a crowdfunding uh, campaign, or is it just you didn't know about it?
1: Or no, no. We 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 did a small crowdfunding campaign um, towards the very end of our production. We considered it early, but. Again, because I had worked in politics and had also um, had experience raising money from people on the internet for political campaigns, I knew that in order for something to really get attention, we'd need to be further along in the process.
0: Yeah, it's actually, it's also a very interesting strategy you did because I do feel that crowdfunding campaigns that are done too early lose... The interest of their audience, like the potential audience they've gathered by connecting with people through the campaign, if it takes two years to get the film, then you forget about it and so I, I agree with you that 's actually a good a good strategy to do private crowdfunding in a way and then go for a small uh, crowdfunding campaign at the end after you run through your first circle, did you use this amount? To call other people and say I already have this amount because you had nothing in terms at that point you d- you didn't have a cast you didn't have a director it was just you right
1: exactly exactly so yeah so the the sort of second circle out um, was a you know a decision that we made and this again came out of out of my research of, of indie film in America um, you know the the fact that women uh, don't get the same opportunities to direct um Is a huge issue. So we made a decision that you know we were going to hire a, a female director. It fit our story, mm-hmm. you know, it, yeah. it, because we had a we had a female protagonist and a large female cast. But also from a fundraising perspective or, or, or from a investor perspective, we thought, all right, we're going to align ourselves with. People in the independent film industry in America who are working on this issue and want to help women in film succeed. So that was a that was a second circle, and then as as you indicated a little while ago, a third circle was people in Louisiana who wanted the Louisiana film industry to succeed. Um, and so there were some um, business owners and personal friends and just um, people who were advocates for the film industry in Louisiana who became investors as well.
0: How much money did you manage to raise over, I don't know, after doing all these circles, you got one million?
1: No, not 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 quite one million. Um, it took us, I'd say, a year, you know, so fall of 2012 to fall of 2013, to get pledges in the neighborhood of, say, seven hundred thousand.
0: Pledges means that people say, "I will give you that if it gets greenlit or something like
1: that." Yes, exactly. That you know, I'm, I, I'm interested, and you know, once you, once you have the cast and you set the filming date, we'll actually move the money okay so you know so it wasn't like i was holding on to people's money all this time
0: which makes sense actually it's easier for people to commit and for you to make them say yes and you know the stress level is lower in a way
1: and we knew that the louisiana tax credit program would eventually contribute about a third of the budget
0: so for a year, you focused all your energy on finding the money, right?
1: Right. And at the same time, we the, the other thing that was going on at that time was that we were trying to find a director. How did
0: you go about that? Did you have any names?
1: Well, you know, we decided that we wanted a, we wanted a woman. And so we made a list, a very long list of women who had directed prominent independent films that we had heard of before. Women who had directed episodes of television that we thought were relevant, and we, you know, we got in touch with folks. Sundance of that year, Sundance uh, in January of 2013, had made an effort that half of the films in the main competition would be directed by women. So we contacted all of those women. I mean, we just, you know, we just made a list and called their agents, you know, and got in touch with people. And many, many people turned us down. Do you know why? Well, sure, because we weren't... We weren't a big enough deal. But that's where the persistence comes in, um, you know, and the need to just believe in yourself and and keep going. And so that was a fairly slow process. But eventually, later in 2013, um, we got connected to an organization in Los Angeles called the Alliance of Women Directors. And I was able to, after I spoke with them, put a notice on their private email list, simply to say, here's who I am, I have this script, you know, it's won such, and the screenplay has won such and such, a you know, an award. We're aiming to produce it and we're looking for a director. And so in that situation, I was able to reach out to dozens of directors all at once, you know, and see who was interested. And so, you know, a number of directors within that organization asked for the script. Some of them dropped off after they read the script because it wasn't what they were interested in or, you know, whatever the reason. But we had, in the end, probably 10 to 15 people that we did phone interviews with. And then Marcus and I went out to California after the phone interviews and and met with maybe half a dozen people in person and narrowed it down from there. And then we attempted to go to contract with our first choice. It it took three months and it fell apart. Um, And then we wound up with our, you know, with the next person on the list. So that in and of itself was a very long process. It's
0: been around two years now, if I'm following properly. Summer of 2011, you're done with the first draft. And now we are end of 2013,
1: maybe? Yes. So by the end of 2013, by fall of 2013, Uh, We were under contract with a director, her name's Maria Burton, and she was working with us to do another set of revisions on the script she was working with us to bring other people into the process she brought a casting director to the table and over the course of the film wound up bringing many other uh professionals to the table as well
0: so the filmmaker came with many assets yes is she based in LA yes and you are based in Maine yes and the producers are based in Louisiana, no? Yes. So you were all working spread in America. Yes.
1: Yes, and you know largely working uh remotely but meeting um you know in one place from time to time. Did the script
0: change a lot between the moment you put it in your drawer? And the moment you took it, you decided to go and try to produce it?
1: It changed uh, not a whole lot through the early producing process because we knew that the director would want to have her own input at that point. And so in the interviews, both the phone interviews and the in-person interviews, there were a lot of creative conversations. You know, what would you as a director want to change, right? What do you like of the script as it is? What would you want to change? And there were certainly people who dropped out of consideration because they wanted to change things that Marcus and I liked and didn't want to change. So
0: one of the reasons why you decided to go further with Maria was also because she shared a common vision about the screenplay, I'm guessing, and didn't want you to make drastic changes?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, and, and we did make we made a number of changes together collaboratively, but it was in the spirit of strengthening the screenplay and, and being able to execute it, you know, in, in the best way possible rather than, you know, radically changing uh, the idea. And Maria's other strength um, was that she had made several independent films before, several features before, had been a producer herself in the past. And so things that were daunting to Marcus and I uh, weren't necessarily daunting to her because she had been through the process before.
0: But once you found uh, Maria and you decided to go further, when were you hoping to shoot and how long was was it supposed to be?
1: We wound up shooting in February of 2014. We shot most of that month. It It was a a 21-day shoot. So let's see. Maria was fully on board by October of the previous year. We did script revisions. We got a casting director because we knew that we wanted to cast the lead roles out of Los Angeles and cast the supporting roles out of Louisiana. Okay,
0: I'm guessing it's for uh, tax purposes or not not necessarily.
1: Well, there there was a greater tax advantage the more Louisiana talent we employed, so we were trying to balance the need for stars in order to eventually sell this movie against knowing that, you know, we had good Louisiana talent. Uh, available as well.
0: At that point you're the writer and you're the producer. You're still very involved. I'm guessing in the whole process of making the movie, but you also have the director now who is part of the conversation and might even I don't know, disagree with you. I'm I'm not sure who would win the battle in <laughs> the moments, but uh, because you know, I'm sure this happened. Um how did um how was the collaborative process of seeing um, a story you wrote two years earlier becoming this uh, feature?
1: Well, you know, it, um, you know, there were, there were hundreds of decisions, right? I mean, large and small. So it's not as if, you know, the director won every single one, or I won every single one, or Marcus won every single one. And yeah, I mean, there there were plenty of Times when we disagreed all the way through the editing process. And I, I, you know, when it came to the creative vision, once we were in production and certainly once we were in editing, you know, the director gets what she wants if we can't come to a consensus. But earlier in the process, when it was more about money and logistics, then I think there was a little more deference to Marcus and I as producers.
0: It feels that it's a rather fluid journey up until that point. You you seem to be a very good strategist, I have to say. (laughs) And you know where you're heading and you managed to raise the budget and you found your director and you're heading towards production. Was there at any point a moment where you felt, let's stop this, or I don't have the shoulders to make it, or, you know,
1: doubt yeah I mean, certainly there was there was plenty of of doubt, and I'm not, you know, I'm not describing all the all the setbacks, right in in this process or, you know, I mentioned that the the contract for a, a director fell through a young woman who I thought may have been a better creative match. but I think it was probably good in the end that it fell through because this other person had never made a film before. You know, and and maybe wouldn't have had the perseverance that Maria did. So, uh, you know, certainly there were there were setbacks. One of the advantages of a team, though, is that when one person was feeling doubtful or feeling like maybe we shouldn't move ahead, there were other folks who could um, carry a little more of the weight on that day, or or keep the encouragement up.
0: Anything that comes. Uh, a highlight about the life on set and this transition from paper to um, filming that you'd like to share?
1: It was all a learning process uh, for me. And I didn't have day-to-day responsibility on the set. You know, I was the producer who dealt more with lawyers and contracts and marketing and, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, But because Maria uh, and Marcus as, as an actor... Um, you know, spent much more of of their previous lives on set, that really became more of their uh, responsibility. So for me on set, it was really just a learning process, you know, what do, all, what do all these other professionals do? And, you know, what, what's it like? But I was able to pop in and out.
0: So once you, you finished shooting, where was the editor and how, did, how long did the editing process take?
1: We had an editor on set who was a, a, a rather junior editor and was someone that Maria had worked with in the past and, and brought to Louisiana. But she was re- she was responsible for really the rough assembly. And then later, um, actually about a month later, we brought in a more senior editor, a woman by the name of Susan Vale, who was one of the regular editors on the TV show Grey's Anatomy. And she was a good friend of Maria's. And I need to give her a great deal of credit and also credit to Shonda Rhimes, the, uh, the showrunner of Grey's Anatomy, who let Susan edit... On the equipment inside the Grey's Anatomy uh, studio, Shonda allowed Susan to uh, to use the equipment at no cost, which was a great benefit to us.
0: So how was the process since you all spread?
1: I made one trip to Los Angeles early on, but essentially Maria and Susan and, uh, and Lysan, who was the assistant, went through their process in... April and May uh, of that year. I still had producing duties at that point. I was dealing with um, actually getting the tax credits from the state of Louisiana at that point so that we could use the the money for the rest of post-production. So I wasn't terribly involved in the editing process. Later in that summer, I mean, we, we knew we had August as a deadline because we were trying to make the Sundance entry. So, We had two separate occasions, once in Boston and once in Washington, D.C., where we showed a rough cut of the film to an audience of friends and got feedback. And Maria at the same time was showing, um, you know, rough cuts to smaller groups of friends in Los Angeles. So probably two to three hundred people just randomly assembled gave us feedback during the editing process and it greatly improved the film
0: you locked the film for in july or did you you hit the sundance deadline uh
1: we did um so so once the editing process was done then we had to go through the rest of post which we did in los angeles uh because that's where maria was based and she wouldn't have to travel for that process.
0: Early on you were talking about the strategy you had in mind when you decided to try to produce the film. What was your strategy in mind to recoup? Uh, I know the ideal case scenario which is playing at big festivals and getting a deal. Maybe that was your strategy but if it is can you tell us what you did and what happened then?
1: Sure. Well you know uh, Sundance really kicks off the season, if you will, right? I mean, everyone who thinks they have uh, that sort of strategy enters Sundance, and then we, you know, we see what shakes out. And the way it works in, in distribution in the US is that there are certain sales agents who really only deal with films that get into Sundance or perhaps South by Southwest. So... There were a group of sales agents that I hoped to work with had we gotten into a big festival. And then there were another group of sales agents that I knew would still, you know, talk to me if if we didn't, you know, and and, and we didn't. So and I think honestly, I think that our film wasn't quite edgy enough for Sundance
0: you had made a list of people, you had found names of sales agents and distributors who were distributing lower profile indie films, let's say, for lack of a better Correct. You waited for Sundance to answer, and then based on the fact that you were not into Sundance, you reached out to this sales agent. or what did
1: you do? Yes, I mean, and, and we were applying to smaller festivals at the same time. So we wound up having our premiere um, at the Omaha, Nebraska film festival. And over the course of, you know, four or five months, did a number of, of regional festivals in the United States. At that point, I had a sales agent under contract. Okay, I went out to Los Angeles, I met him, you know, I, I interviewed much like the director process, you know, once I had talked to people on the phone, you know, I wound up interviewing a few people in person. To figure out who I thought I could do business with, because it's um, I wouldn't do a deal with a person like that without meeting them. You know, there are too many there are too many charlatans in the industry.
0: Basically, you picked your own sales agent.
1: Well, of the people who were interested,
0: and a sales agent is someone who is going to have a catalog of films and trying to uh, sell them and make deals in America, but also in the world for your movie with distributors, right? Exactly. At that point, the sales agent doesn't give you anything. It's just percentage based on future
1: sales. Right. Because the the kind of film we were, you know, I I wasn't, there wasn't going to be any money up front with bigger films, uh, you know, bigger stars, you know, higher profile indie films, there might be some money up front. But in my case, uh, there wasn't. So it was more about trusting the person um, and knowing that he was going to make his best effort on our behalf. I should mention his name is Glenn Reynolds, and the company is Circus Road Films. And I feel like they did a very good job for us, that they were they were honest brokers. You know, they can't guarantee anything. They can't guarantee that HBO or Netflix or anyone is going to be interested. But I knew that he would deal honestly with me and get the film in front of all those decision makers.
0: At that point, once you find a sales agent, is it it for you?
1: It's mostly their responsibility. I mean, I had a bit of, a, of an oversight role. And so at some point, Glenn says to me, here are the five companies that are interested and here are their offers, and then we go into another contracting process. And Glenn assisted on that, but it's ultimately my responsibility as the as the producer to make sure that that contract is negotiated and signed
0: and they managed to get you on Netflix
1: well yes there was a few other steps um that we we got distribution uh North American distribution with a company called Mar Vista Entertainment and so then at that point once the contract is signed with Mar Vista I went through several months of worrying about fulfillment you know getting Mar Vista the film and various other promotional materials and legal materials that they needed in order to do their job. And that was a very intense two to three months of work for me as a producer.
0: Yes, of course, because there's a very different version of the film that you can send to a film festival. A lot of people might not know that. And then as a producer, once you get a deal, you have, to, you have a, a set of things, including the quality of sound or clearing everything before they agree to distribute it, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. And so some of it was technical, as you said, um, and in some ways that was was easier for me to deal with because I had hired good people. You know, I had a good post-production facility. I had a good sound facility. So I had to manage that process, but I was in good hands the legal contracts were all my responsibility, So I've got to prove copyright. I've got to prove that every piece of music that we use in the film uh, is paid for and contracted for. And that was my responsibility as a producer to get all of that information to the distributor in the way that they needed it.
0: That's actually a very stressful part of the job. There are a lot of indie films that if they don't get a big deal and a big company that is going to handle everything you did. A lot of films make it to festivals and then they cannot go further because they don't have the money or the power to clear all this list of points. So it's, it's very good you're, you're bringing that up. So about the Netflix deal, I just wanted to, first of all, for anyone who is listening right now, if they are in America and they have Netflix, they can watch a sort of homecoming on it, right? Yes, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. And that's for how long? Do you know? Do you have a date?
1: Uh, I, I actually don't know. But Netflix wasn't the first thing that Mar Vista did for us. The first thing they did was to get us on iTunes and to get us on uh cable pay-per-view
0: maybe sh- first i should i should mention this is a digital distribution
1: yes if 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 people uh around the world who are listening to this if you go to a sort of homecoming.com you can see by country uh, how to find it.
0: Yeah, and I, and I will link everything, of course, so people can find uh, the site, the movie, where to watch the movie, and all the uh, information you mentioned during the conversation. So now the movie is living its life either by uh, organic word of mouth, I'm guessing, and through the platforms it's on, right?
1: Well, the Marvista spent some money on digital advertising. They cut a very good trailer, Um, And this was all negotiated uh, as part of the contract process, how much money they could spend on these various promotional uh, efforts as part of the contract and without getting further permission from us as producers. But we also ran a parallel marketing effort as producers. So we did our own advertising really throughout the whole process, throughout the festival process, throughout You know, every time we had a screening, you know, we would do our own advertising on Facebook.
0: And did you feel this had an impact?
1: Yes. I mean, in our case, we had two stars, uh, two young stars, Laura Morano and Kat McNamara, who were television stars in the U.S. and had strong followings. So we knew that we could reach through Facebook advertising, an existing group of their fans, and then you know the argument is just you know you're a fan of Laura Morano in her Disney Channel show, come and watch her in this movie.
0: I see you you raised all this money from uh, private investors in a way. Could you recoup, or is this still a long process?
1: It's still a long process. I mean, I can tell you that we we have not recouped. I'm not sure that it uh, that it looks very good at this point. I mean, there, I don't know the. The Netflix deal is fairly new. I don't know a lot of details of it, and uh, the distributor is obligated to tell me various financial details every three months, but I don't hear a lot in between. But I would be surprised if um, we made enough money, you know, from Netflix or any other opportunities down the road to to fully recoup. I mean, it's it's, it's a gamble, you know, And, and really only the very biggest films recoup. I
0: know and this is this is the, the magic and the craziness of filmmaking in a way which is whatever you do it's going to cost a certain amount of money and the, the chances of recouping are so rare. I'm not surprised personally because the more I know about filmmaking the, the less it makes sense. If you were to do a sort of homecoming Tomorrow, what would you do differently, knowing all you know right now? Well,
1: I, I I suppose I'm I suppose I'm a bit more careful and more cautious and less naive as I think about uh, my next project. I mean, the the good news is that by taking this big gamble and Uh, you know, losing a good deal of my own money and, you know, going through the process, I'm in a better position to make another movie down the road. Uh But I'm very careful both now, both in terms of what I write and in terms of what I would um, attempt to produce. I I I suppose I'm more aware of the marketplace and what sort of movie might be a better bet for my next project to do uh, to do this way as as writer and producer. I'm actually I I'm, I'm helping, you know, on other projects and trying to get more experience. Uh, I'm helping on a much larger film uh, that's that's going to happen in Australia next year, but it's not you know, it's not mine. It's just something that I can come in and, and, and work on and learn from.
0: So you are working, you're, you, right now you are honing your skills as a producer and you are developing new material as a writer?
1: Yes, yes. Um, in fact, when this other sort of uh, producing opportunity uh, came along, I was a third of the way uh, through a new script that I hope to produce at some point. And I'm sort of in a crazy period of producing right now on the Australian project that will die down. I'll go back to writing, um, you know, and then that will shift again.
0: So if anything, this six year long journey for your first feature film mm-hmm. has just reinforced your uh, desire to create stories and make movies, if I'm understanding well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, we have so many, I, I mean... Yes, it's hard, and yes, it's hard to make money, and and, and it's hard to get it done. On the other hand, we have so many opportunities now to tell the stories that we want to tell, you know, outside of the big studio process, and that's that's really a wonderful thing.
0: It is. It is. I agree with you. One last thing. Where can people find you if they would like to reach out and, you know, uh, either by email or through the socials? Is there a way for them to reach out?
1: Uh, sure. Um, there is a website for a sort of homecoming, which is a sort of homecoming.com. I have a personal website at Kettlecoveproductions.com uh, and I'll, I can send you that link as well.
0: Okay, Lynn, I thank you so much for your uh, time, your transparency and your generosity. I think that what you managed to do is very impressive and I look forward to seeing what's coming up next for you and how you're going to transform all these lessons you learn during the making of a sort of homecoming for your next
1: project. Thank you for talking with me.
0: you're still here i'm guessing you've enjoyed this conversation and that makes me very happy the show is now available on itunes stitcher soundcloud and pretty much everywhere you go to listen to podcasts if you'd like to spread the love consider taking a few minutes to rate the show on itunes and share it with your friends rating the show and talking about it are actually vital steps to help mentorless podcasts grow and continue so thank you in advance for taking the time to do it the music was created by French artist Soul of Bear. Discover their techno universe on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/soulofbear, spelled S O U L O F B E R. See you on the next episode, and in the meantime, create and question.